0: This is the Early Link Podcast, I'm Rafael Otto. As usual, you can catch us on the airwaves on 99.1 FM in Portland on Sundays at 4.30 PM or subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts. Today, I'm speaking with Elliot Haspel who is a nationally recognized early childhood policy expert and author of the book, Crawling Behind, America's Childcare Crisis and How to Fix It. Elliot's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Atlantic and the Washington Post among other places. And he is a program officer at a philanthropic foundation in Richmond, Virginia. Elliot, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start by talking to you about your book, which came out in 2019, and it takes a look at the childcare crisis in the country. I know things have changed, or I'm hoping they've changed a little bit since 2019, but maybe not enough. But can you talk about the crisis and sort of where we are today? Paint the picture for us
1: yeah yeah, I mean it's been an eventful year and a half since the book came out. So the childcare crisis in the US is still raging. It just the contours look a little bit different now than they did back in 2019. So what describes as a childcare crisis is the fact that childcare is largely unaffordable, inaccessible, of questionable quality and is a sector where practitioners are getting paid. Miserably low wages. So it's not working for anyone. There's no part of it that no one is sort of benefiting from the system. It's not working for parents. It's not working for providers. It's not working for businesses and it's not working for kids. And a lot of that has historical roots going all the way back to the founding of the country and going through our history. But what's happening right now, you know, the pandemic really brought the hammer down on an already fragile industry. So, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, when all the childcare programs had to basically close, except for those that were serving the children of healthcare workers and other truly the frontline workers, it was sort of an existential crisis because the way we treat childcare in this country, we treat childcare programs more like restaurants than we do like public schools or libraries. And what that means is they need paying customers to stay in business. And all of a sudden, the customers were gone. There were surveys coming out, which I think were accurate, that without any kind of government assistance, we would lose half of the childcare right. programs in the country. Right now, there was some some government assistance with the CARES Act and you know the PPP loans. All those things were able to kind of keep the sector afloat during the worst of the pandemic. And then the American Rescue Plan and the December stimulus combined for about $49 billion, which is truly a historic investment in childcare. So the sector has been stabilized. The devastation that we were facing didn't come to pass because we were able to glue it together with assistance. But now there's a sort of additional knock-on crisis, which is Chuck Bergen's having huge trouble finding staff. So while we've heard of labor issues across the country, in child care, this is particularly bad because there are mandated child-to-adult ratios. Right, that I means is that if you don't have enough teachers, you just can't open all the classrooms you otherwise would be able to. That's becoming more of a problem as the median wage for childcare workers is about $11.65 an hour. Other industries, fast food, retail, you know, are raising their wages, they're offering better benefits, and child care programs have no ability to just take a little bit less profit and make that up because they weren't making any real profit to begin with. Right. So, yeah, we're really in a, a moment where it's sort of been crisis after crisis after crisis.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the historical background? I know you said going all the way back to the founding of the country and I think a little bit more recently, we could point to maybe some progress that had been starting to get made in the 60s and the 70s, and that was held up. Can you talk a little bit about the history that is informing the current crisis today?
1: Yeah. So to begin with, you can't separate out understanding American child care from understanding how ambivalent America has been about mothers of young children working for the first childcare, sort of external childcare that existed in the country came in two forms, right? One were enslaved women who were forced to care for the children of their enslavers. And the second was sort of these charities set up basically as holding pens for the kids of widowed mothers or truly like destitute mothers who had no choice but to go to go and work. We you know in the late eighteen hundreds. We've never really shaken out of that. There is always been sort of this reluctant or exploitive, you know, system that we've never sort of embraced the idea. Even though we espouse gender equity these days, this idea that women and mothers should be able to go and work outside the home if they want to, and they should have viable, high quality care options available to them so that they can do that. Or if they don't, if they want to work part time, whatever the situation that they want, they should be empowered we've never acted that out. We have a child care system that really rests on a welfare frame. you mentioned the 60s and the 70s, and there was this moment in 1971, Congress passed the Comprehensive Child Development Act, which would have created a much more of a nationally sort of federally funded child care system. But it was vetoed by President Nixon in pretty strong language and really putting the kind of stake in the ground that the federal government should not be involved in the family, right? right. so it really cemented this idea that childcare is a family responsibility, it's not societal responsibility, and that the ghosts of 71 have continued to haunt us to today. Right, how would you describe the shift in public opinion about this now? The one thing that's happened, and this has actually been true since the late 1990s, is that regardless of what society wanted them to or not, women entered the workforce. Two thirds of basically all kids under the age of six have all of their available parents or guardians in the workforce. Obviously, if you're a single parent, you have to be working and so you need care. But it's also true for significant portions of mothers too in two income households or two parent households, rather. And as a result, you started to see this coupled with the brain science coming out around how much early childhood shapes future academic and life success. There's been a broad shift. Where childcare now polls very, very well. The idea that parents should have access to high-quality childcare is something that you see a lot of support for on both sides of the aisle. Honestly, there's still a lot of ambivalence. There's still a lot of people that don't think, particularly mothers of very young children, should be working outside the home. But there has absolutely been a shift where, when you come down to it, most people recognize that this is a reality that we need to contend with. That the status quo. It isn't working. We have to do something about it rather than continue to cause this suffering for parents and children just because we aren't acceding to the reality that they're working, whether or not we might personally want them to be. Right.
0: We're, we're talking about childcare. And I'm curious about how you think about childcare and preschool in this umbrella of early care and education, early childhood education, early learning. Childcare is really an early learning opportunity. Like, that's mm-hmm. the way we typically think about it. And yet, I think a general understanding by the public that these are different things, and
1: I'm not sure that they are. What are your thoughts (laughs) on that? I'm not sure that they are either. I think so it's been fascinating. So first of all, I'm a proponent of thinking about this as one cohesive birth to five system, right? Like there's nothing magical that happens when a kid goes from being two to three or three to four and suddenly their brain kicks in and they're like, oh, I'm learning now. No, it's not how brain development works. Brain development is cumulative. <laughs> we're the foundations for everything as it starts at birth. And frankly, learning the alphabet at age three or at age four and a half has very little ultimate impact on a kid's trajectory. What's fascinating about the pre-K example, though, is what pre-K advocates have been able to do is by using an educational frame, circumvent the societal displeasure with the idea of women working, right? Because a pre-K program for a three-year-old, like through that classroom, and a three-year-old classroom in a child care center or a family child care are very, very, very similar. Mm -hmm. It's just different what we call it. Yet, Pre-K is immensely popular. You know, some of the first universal pre-K programs in the country were in places like Oklahoma and Georgia. The one with the highest rated system is in Alabama. Like, it, it is a, very much has bipartisan support, and it's generally free. It is it, treated as an extension of the public school system, which has pros and cons, but it shows you that we have this schism in our minds between education and care. Right. Which you can sort of use it for good sometimes, but it, it also has a lot of, of negative implications.
0: You mentioned there are pros and cons of having a preschool childcare system embedded in K twelve or connected to K twelve as part of like yeah. the public good or the continuum of education. What are some of those pros? What are the cons?
1: Yeah. So some of the pros are for one thing, it just gets a lot more public support and funding. So a pre K teacher attached to the public school is a public school employee. And so their compensation is much, much better. They're getting paid on par with the kindergarten teacher. Their turnover is much lower. Their ability to get professional development is much better. All of those things that we, you know, we have a an inadequate and inequitable public school system. That's absolutely true. On the other hand, like there are certain things, like there's a floor of quality, you know, the floor of decent compensation. These opportunities that are, presented to children and to the employees. So that's all to the good. The downside is, you know, public school are sort of by their very nature standardized, right? They operate a certain number of hours. They tend to not, you know, they operate at certain kinds of facilities. And what we know is that parents' preferences, needs, particularly for either you children, the children are younger, really vary. Some parents really only want their child with a relative, with someone who speaks their language in a small, like, family child care home. They want them in a childcare program attached to a church or a synagogue or a mosque, what have you, you know, and, and what we know is that any of those settings can be great for kids. Like little kids can thrive because you're not again, we're not trying to teach them trigonometry. Like the content here is not like what's at issue. Mm-hmm. The issue is we need to have like warm, attentive caregivers who are following the children's lead, and naturally that will involve learning and you know involve books and all the other stuff. But like the setting, we can be setting agnostic so long as that setting is high quality. The problem with pre-K is that it it sometimes gets you the sort of very academicized sort of version of we want everyone in a classroom. And there's not actually a lot of evidence to suggest that all the three and four-year-olds need to be in like a a classroom setting. That may work for some of them, may not work for others. The other piece of things I'll mention quickly is just from the pure financing standpoint, most childcare programs make their budgets work on the back of their preschoolers because you can have the the ratios can be so much higher. You, You can have... One teacher for four infants, but you could have one teacher for 10 or 12 preschoolers. One thing that some places have found when they put universal pre-K um, is that it sucks all the four-year-olds into the public system and the actual, the infinite toddler that providers really struggle as a result. It was, uh, I think, something that actually in Multnomah County it did, did so it was very thoughtful about how they did their UPK measure because they're aware of it.
0: Yeah, the recent preschool for all. And I mean, that kind of measure is something that's designed to address a number of the things that you're talking about. Increase wages for early educators, help strengthen the supply of space, like physical space. And that's something that I know that we're dealing with in the county. And I think many places are, is like there's just a lack of of infrastructure where there's a lack of yes. classrooms and space
1: to even expand childcare care preschool are you seeing the same thing yes that is absolutely in a national problem facilities and, mm-hmm. and you want these facilities to be high quality like you don't necessarily want uh, a child care program on like a the strip mall at the side of the road right like you want these places to be where you can have good outdoor space for the kids you know where the facilities are, are high quality where there aren't any environmental toxins or like all, all these things so yes there's certainly a challenge that we we see nationwide
0: there's also this idea i know there are preschool programs out there there's one in oregon that is using the like a mixed delivery approach where a preschool mm-hmm. classroom yep. might be available in something that feels more like a traditional school-based classroom but there are in-home options that kind of thing does apply to child care settings as well child care is more likely to be provided in-home And then there are scenarios where parents are working at night and might need overnight childcare, things like that. So it does have a different feel in terms of what a public system might be able to offer. How is that being Mm -hmm. handled?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's generally a consensus that mixed delivery is the way to go for exactly the reasons you just described. And because, again, we know that a private program can be just as good as a public funded program. There are some ongoing debates. So, for example, California is in the middle of a conversation right now about whether they should just be delivered through public schools. Their sort of universal pre-K proposal, they call it transitional kindergarten there, or whether it should be delivered in private settings as well. And you know, and then there's also an ongoing debate in the field, I think, about the role of sort of these large for-profit chains, because right now they do serve a role in sort of our pretty impoverished system. But moving forward, what role do those chains play is also, I think, an open question but yeah, the idea of a mixed delivery system, you know, we do this in other sectors. So if you think about Medicare, right, like you can go to a private health clinic using your Medicaid dollars. You can take a Pell Grant and you can go to a private college with that. Like, so we have plenty of examples where we say like, yes, public money can be used in private settings so long as that private setting agrees to abide by certain rules and regulations.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I know you talked about some of the infusion of dollars federally a little bit. And looking at the chapters in your book, one of them is called Childcare Should Be Free for Families in America. America Can Afford It. So
1: break that down. Yeah. So this is the thing. But you look at the estimates of how much it would cost to run a really high quality childcare system in this country where you'd you'd be very affordable, you know, and where you're paying practitioners as well. Like The low-end estimate is probably around $140 billion a year. high-end estimate sort of more $300, $400 billion a year. Now that sounds like a big number, but then you start breaking it down in a couple of ways. First, to put it in context, we spend $700 billion a year in this country on K-12 education, if you combine federal, state, local money. We spend about a five hundred ish, six hundred ish billion on things like Medicaid and Medicare. So, you know, it's a big number, but it's also like up there with other major social programs that are, you know, impacting huge swaths of people. And we're talking about tens of millions of parents and kids here. So, that's one. The other thing is, unlike most social programs, childcare has an immediate return on investment. Not just those sort of medium and long term returns from children doing better in school and you know having better earnings as adults, which is true. Absolutely. But what we see is that every place that has ever put low cost or free child care for some number of ages is the maternal employment rate jumps almost immediately because there are, turns out, a lot of women primarily who are at home right now with their child who would like to increase their wages uh, like like their a number of hours working or who would like to go and find part time work or who would like to, you know, seek a, a promotion or who can't because they just don't have the child care situation that makes that work. So, for example, in Quebec, in Canada, although they had some issues with the way they designed their system, how fast they put it into place so they've had some quality problems, but what they found financially is that the the province is actually making money off of their system because of the increased economic activity. So there's a, a real case here that... We just need a down payment to kind of get a good system up and running, and then then it, it largely is going to offset its own costs. To say none—that's just pure—we can't dollars and cents before you get to like questions of human flourishing themselves. Like you know, the, how do we support families in this country? How do we make sure that parents feel like they can have the number of kids that they want when they want them? You know, like the, these ideas of um, it's almost more philosophical value questions around what does it mean. To be able to have the self-determination and freedom to design the family and family situation that you want, which we fortunately for far, far, far too many families in America right now, they don't have that choice. They're very constrained in their freedom and how to choose to design their family. Yeah. I know
0: you you mentioned the federal dollars. There's the federal block grant that's going to be coming down to help stabilize child care providers and then there's money in the american rescue plan as well mm-hmm. can you talk about what you think the impact of those investments is going to do
1: and is that the down payment or is it not quite enough yet <laughs> so i think it can be a down payment <laughs> if it's seen as such right so it's an incredible infusion of one-time money right like we've so well the block grant increases that were happening even in the last administration those are permanent but that was increasing it up to around you know it's at like $10 billion a year right now, so not chump change, but also not enough to build the system off of. Mm-hmm. The nearly $50 billion coming from the American Rescue Plan and the December stimulus you know, offers a really incredible opportunity, but you have to think about it, again, the money's going away in a couple of years. And so you know, how to use this to innovate, to think about finally implementing things like more contract-based program where programs aren't reliant on just children attending basically you kind of get it a little bit off of that restaurant model and more towards the public school or like library model of you know the public money is flowing you know just it's regardless of kind of what's happening yeah with the number of people who are there every day there are big opportunities around again this compensation issue the workforce shortages are terrible right now like i was saying there is some chance like to think about how do you offer some kind of good health benefits through this. How do you raise wages? But again, we're not going to be able to do that if all of a sudden in two years the money's gone and you can't keep the wages up anymore. You can't keep offering health insurance. So we have to, I think, think about this as the front end that then transitions into passing either a major piece of federal legislation, like the Childcare for Working Families Act, and/or major state and, in some cases, local revenue sources that again need to be permanent there, year after year after year, that, that actually let us build a system. I think we have a, a ton of opportunity. This is more money than the field has seen at once, probably ever, but the temporary nature of it means we have to leverage it well, or it's just going to end up being a a spike that then, you know, leaves us back in a lurch afterwards.
0: So apart from the issue of needing to get some sort of permanent funding in place, what are the major threats to being able to build this system? What are the
1: major obstacles? Yeah, there are a couple of them. One is the workforce. So one thing we've known for a while, this is not new, but there's not a flood of people who are trying to come into work in the childcare industry. Again, it's good work and you get to do good, but it's hard work and it's very low paid. We don't have a huge pipeline of folks and much less people who are qualified and talented and high quality. We've lost in our family childcare sector, somewhere around 50% of the entire supply nationwide has disappeared in the past 15 years. And again, it's because a lot of these women are reaching sort of retirement age more or less or, or, you know, and they're starting to close their programs and there's not a whole ton of young folks who are wanting to come and and do that work. But that's a threat. This is something, again, to go back to the Quebec example, part of the reason they had quality issues is because their workforce wasn't ready to fill their sort of expansion of slots. So a lot of this comes down, like childcare is a very person-centric sector as it well should be. And if we aren't taking care of the people who are involved in it, then, you know, it's going to be really hard to build a high quality system. So, so I think that the absolute number one threat is we won't have the workforce to make this happen. I think there's a question when it comes to actually implementing and passing these legislation. You know, we haven't until pretty recently seen what I would consider an organized resistance to expanding public child care, it kind of floated under the surface. Again, like I said, like pretty bipartisan You'd business groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce who were like very supportive of it. I will say, just to name it, since a Democratic president came in and embraced this issue as like a, a pretty important one and talked about it, you know, and has joined us to Congress, we have seen more active backlash to it than we have seen in a long time. Folks claiming that we're trying to, <laughs> government's trying to, you can't take over some of the family. Right, um, right you know, and things like that sort of uh, is actually, you know, I mentioned ghosts of Nixon in 71. It really harkens is, back to that, um, right? It does very much harken back to that. It's almost the same talking point. So that's another just sort of, I guess, kind like, of like, because capital P political threat.
0: Right. There's another effort that you're involved in, which is called Child Care Next. Can you talk about what that looks like and what you're hoping to accomplish with that?
1: Yeah, childcare next is a philanthropic, uh, basically grant national grant competition, and the idea is to catalyze these transformative campaigns to change childcare in states. So uh, I kind of conceived of this idea because many other sectors or many other industries, then or issue areas rather, that are trying to fight for big policy wins you look at what they're able to do, and they bring a very sophisticated political toolkit. They're doing polling, they're doing campaign contributions, they're doing events to mobilize voters, you know, all, all of these things. Traditionally, the child care kind of advocacy and organizing field has been pretty under-resourced and hasn't really been able to pull out that level of sophistication. The other thing we also do is we get very kind of stuck with, like, what's the thing that's right in front of our faces, like the incremental changes. And so, What this idea is, there will be five states chosen. There were 36 states that applied. The five states that are chosen will be part of a cohort that receives significant six-plus figure funding for hopefully through the rest of basically the 2020s. And what they're going to do is set a vision and say so by the end of the decade or so, here's where we want to be. Here's our big transformative vision for child care. We're going to transform quality. We're going to transform compensation. We're going to transform affordability. We're going to transform access. We're going to put equity at the center of all of this and make sure this works for parents. I mean, here we're going to figure out how much it's going to cost. We're going to figure out how we might pay for it. And we're going to figure out how we're going to win it at a state. And the idea is that we want to get these five states to be proof points, much in the way that Romney Care and Massachusetts led to Obamacare, right? that we want the states often lead the way in these efforts to be able to say, here's what an effective childcare system looks like. And to do that, you know, in a multitude of different kinds of states to show it's not just something that you need to be a small, you know, Northeastern state in order to do it but you can do it anywhere in the nation. So that's the hope. And we'll be in the sort of interviewing finalists now, and we'll be announcing the initial cohort by the end of July.
0: Can you talk about the, you mentioned there's a focus on equity, and and I believe it's a focus on racial equity in particular in that project. Talk about the importance of that, the focus on racial
1: equity and what you're hoping to accomplish with that in mind. Yeah, so it's absolutely. I mean, that focus on racial equity is one of our non-negotiables. So we know that, as many things in life, the people who are most impacted by the failure of our child care system are people of color, families of color, kids of color. They are the ones that have the least access to child care programs. They're the ones that you know have the least access to quality child care programs. The workforce itself was about forty percent or more uh, women of color, and a significant portion of those are immigrants. You know, we, we have. This is a very diverse workforce and which again gets very low wages and has largely been subsidizing the whole system on their backs for a very long time. And then just everything in terms of the where childcare is located, you know, within see like all of these dimensions come back to racial inequities. And so if we're gonna actually design an effective system, we have to share the decision-making power. And really be led in the decision and the design by the people who are most affected by this and by people who have been historically disenfranchised and discriminated against in access to child care. So, you know, that really is something that we're looking for. One of the other things that's really important to this project is the idea of shared power. So what I mean by that is we're not just looking for traditional advocates, the grass, kind of the Kukunga Grass Tops folks who, you know, speak for parents and practitioners. We want to make sure that the grassroots are there at the table too. That They're helping, sharing the power, leading these efforts and truly shaping the decisions that are being made because we know that is what leads to the design actually working for the people who want to work for. Going back to Multnomah Preschool for All campaign, right? There was a, Parent Accountability Council, and that was at the center of a lot of the decision-making. They got to vet a lot of the plans. And my understanding from doing some interviews with folks out there is that really shaped a lot of how the final language and the proposal and the ballot measure ended up. I think that we can't divorce racial equity from these conversations. It's just inherent in what we're trying
0: to do. I have one more question for you, and perhaps maybe you've answered this to some degree, but I also wanted to take a quote from your book, and it's the Fred Rogers quote that you have in there. That, and I, when I read it, I just loved it, and I feel like I just want to read it quickly because it's it's so good. But the quote is, we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond, and I consider those people my heroes. Mm -hmm. Tell me about why you picked the quote and... Who
1: are those responders right now? Yeah. So I picked that quote because I really think the mindset shift in this country we have to have is that child care is a societal responsibility, not just an individual responsibility. Whether or not you even have kids, we all should care about whether American families are flourishing or whether these families have the care that they need for their kids to thrive, for the parents to thrive. Um, and for everyone around them in the community to thrive. And so you know, I think that is the shift. I often say, like, if I could say one sort of significant change beyond what was already being talked about, I think we child care should be a right. You know, every, in all 50 state constitutions, families have a right to public education. Children have a right to public education. In zero, state constitutions, to, to parents or children have a right to access early care and education or to access child care. And that's, I think, a real, it's very telling that we, we still consider child care, Welfare, we consider it to be an individual responsibility. So, I think what I like about that Fred Rogers quote is he really speaks to the fact that we have to be able to see beyond our own locus and uh, the broader impacts that those around us thriving has on all of society. And you know, I would say to who are the I mean, there are people there are the the advocates and, and sort of people on the ground right now who are striving day in and day out to draw attention to this issue, to tell their stories, the practitioners who have been, I mean, we've been doing, we have a whole lot of childcare practitioners who have never had their program close a day during this pandemic that have been out there and they were caring for the kids of healthcare workers and sanitation workers during the first few months and their programs never closed and they're still doing it for $11 an hour with few of any benefits. And for those folks who are taking care of other people's children um, at risk to their own lives, I mean, that truly is to me, like those are the heroes. And right now, the people who are trying to lift up and save the sector so that it can work for other parents and so that we can have dignity for these workers who are doing, <laughs> literally cultivating the brain development of a generation. I think that's, to me, the definition of a hero. Thank you so much,
0: Elliot. It was really great to have you on the podcast. appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. This show is brought to you by Children's Institute. We're at work transforming early learning and healthy development for young children and their families in Oregon. Tune in on 99.1 FM on Sundays at 4.30 p.m., or stream these segments wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org. Pay us a visit, sign up for our newsletter, or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening!